We desire to be the center of attention. I'm going to start in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. And so we, this is the setup. This is the context for the story that he's about to tell you. And it's, it's setting up into almost like a competitive landscape. On the one hand, you have John the Baptist, who in his day, he had a baptism ministry. That's why he was called John the Baptist. And whenever you thought of baptism, you would think of John. And vice versa, when you thought of John, you would think of baptism. If, if, if you were to put it in business terms, he had a, a corner on the baptism market. And then all of a sudden, you have this other ministry now. Jesus and his disciples, and they're doing baptism as well. And, and it, to put it in maybe uh, today's terms, it's kind of maybe illustrate what this would be like. I'm going to do a little word association game, okay? So I'm going to say a word, and you're going to tell me, you're going to use your voice, and you're going to tell me what word comes to mind, all right? Are you ready? Girl Scout. Cookies. It worked. Now, does Girl Scout, do the Girl Scouts do other things than sell cookies? John says no I assume they do other things than, than sell cookies but, but we have become we have made that attachment with Girl Scout and cookies that you cannot think of Girl Scouts without thinking of cookies that's kind of the idea of what's going on here John the Baptist was he was the guy the ministry that performed baptism now Girl Scout cookies by the way I looked this up if you're curious, I think they're going to start selling Girl Scout cookies from March 1st to March 17th in this area. So if you have a hankering, uh, you can get that on your schedule. Now, some of you know Harambe has had some financial issues, all right? And I thought it might be a great initiative if maybe we also sold some cookies. And... Uh, Maybe some similar cookies, maybe uh, some mint cookies, we'll call them slim mints, and some coconut and caramel cookies, uh, we'll call them samokas, uh, just kind of a random word. And then maybe some peanut butter chocolate cookies, we'll call them tag belongs or something like that. And uh, maybe we'll sell them from March 1st to March 17th around the corner. Now, it's a good cause, right? We're, we want to support the gospel in the area. We want to be a blessing uh, uh, to, the, to the neighborhood. But would, that, would the Girl Scouts see that as a blessing to them? Probably not. They would probably have some questions they want to ask us about why we're, do, why we're encroaching on sort of their area, even though it's a good cause. Like, no one's saying that if we sold cookies for the purposes of, of the ministry here, that's not a bad thing. But, but what we're seeing here is an overlap in things that people thought was theirs. And I think that's what we're seeing in this passage. We have very similar ministries going on. Baptism of repentance. John and his disciples 
Jesus and his disciples, and they're doing it in the same general vicinity uh, along the Jordan River, probably. Uh, John is baptizing probably to the north of Jesus, but they're uh, close enough that they're well aware of each other and what they're doing. And you might ask, well, is it right to frame this as competition? I don't think it's right to frame it as competition, but I think it is being framed as competition. And if we look at ministry today, the question is, do ministries compete with each other? Do churches compete with each other? Of course, they do. Church will say, hey, we've got to have the best show, the best programming to attract the people that we want who will give and and, and so to keep it going. Like uh, Pastor Bob calls it sheep stealing. Churches do this. We want to have the best show. And it's, it's really the wrong motivation if that's the motivation. We might cloak it and we want to reach, reach the, the, the un, unbelievers for the gospel. But what some churches do is they're, they're so concerned about building their numbers and building their prestige and building their reputation that they try to put on the best show to attract already believers to a better show. And it appeals to our consumerism, right? Who, who doesn't like a better show? Who doesn't like more polished and more talented performers to watch? And so it just sort of works as a, a cycle. It sort of snowballs on each other and builds into something that we might, that might not glorify God at all. So we do this. We compete. And I think what we're seeing here is his, John's disciples are starting to get into this competition mentality. And so let's, let's see how John's disciples respond to the up-and-coming ministry of Jesus. Verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. This is their response and their response to Jesus and his disciples baptizing. Now, there's just this note here in verse 25. It says a discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purification. We don't know really what that discussion was about. There was some Jew, apparently someone who was familiar with some of the ceremonial cleansing uh, practices that Jews would engage in, and they were debating. They were having a discussion. Somehow this prompted John's disciples to go to John and talk to him about Jesus' baptism and what they're doing. Okay, so the question is, in their response, are they negative towards Jesus? Are they positive towards Jesus? Or are they neutral towards Jesus? And it's a fair question. As I uh, looked at the commentaries, all four commentaries I looked at all agree that John's disciples are negative towards Jesus. And I'm going to explain to you why I believe and agree that that's the case if you look at their response, there's, there's a few things that they do in, verses, in verse 26. They come to John. They said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness. The first thing is they, they, uh, they, don't, they don't call him by his name. They don't call him Jesus. 
And so there's like an impersonality that they're using. They say that, basically they're saying like, that guy that we saw you with. Which is interesting, if Jesus is engaged in the same ministry that you feel passionate about, wouldn't, wouldn't you expect them to be partners in ministry? Like if we, if we as a church had a sister church that we were friendly with, I wouldn't say that pastor over there. I would say Pastor Daniel from wherever church you know, we're talking about. I would name him if it was something of a friendly relationship. So that's the first clue that the, John's disciples are not necessarily friendly towards Jesus. They're saying that guy who you were with. The second thing is they call out what he's doing. They call out what he's doing. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. Which is interesting. Either it's unexpected to them or they really don't like what he's doing. Otherwise, there's no reason to call out that he's baptizing. So they look, hey, John, this guy that, that, that you were talking to, he's baptizing. That's the second thing. The third thing. They, they, they call him by an impersonal name, impersonal reference. Secondly, they, they, uh, they mention what he's doing. And the third thing, they say all are going to him. All are going to him. Number one, is that true? Is that true? No, it's not true. Because we just read that people are still coming to John to get baptized. So it is not true that all people are going to Jesus to be baptized. It's it's a form of exaggeration. And the question is, when do you use that kind of exaggeration? Let me give you an example. If I said to you, the Patriots always win the Super Bowl. Okay, what's my perspective on the Patriots? I don't like them, right? It's pretty clear. Because, number one, it's not true that the Patriots always win. The, they win more often than I would like. But they don't always win the Super Bowl. So when you use that form of exaggeration, it's usually an indication that you don't like what's happening. And I think that's exactly what's going on. John's disciples are saying, oh, everyone's going to Jesus. Not true. But from their perspective, it's an expression of frustration. Because they were the only game in town, and now they're not. And in fact, we're going to see in verse 1 of chapter 4... The Pharisees are learning that Jesus and his disciples are actually baptizing more people than John. And, and, and we know that Jesus is not actually baptizing. It's Jesus' disciples. But it's like his ministry. And so they lump it all together. And then furthermore, based on John's response to his disciples, starting in verse 27, John responds to the disciples in this way. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. Unless it is given him uh, from heaven. And so John is responding basically by saying uh, the success that Jesus is having is, is permitted and given to by God. Right? And, and he's answering in such a way that he's addressing a concern. There's no need to answer in that way unless his disciples are concerned about the success of Jesus. And so John's response is basically to alleviate that concern by saying, you know what, Jesus or God is in control, and it's God who's giving Jesus that success. 
Now, the question that I want to ask us is, do we relate at all to John's disciples? Can we relate to their concerns about this success that other people are having in the very same thing that I feel like I've built up my career on, or I've built up my identity on, or I've built up my, my sense of what success means. Someone else is having more success than me now. Have you ever felt twinges of jealousy and envy? I'm just now getting to the age where I have peers of mine same age, same basic background, who have started like successful companies and have gotten notoriety because of it. And, I, and I've caught myself on a couple of occasions where my first reaction was, how come I'm not as successful as that person? I'm just as smart as they are. And I remember thinking in those moments, how come my first reaction wasn't to rejoice at the news of what I heard? How come my first reaction wasn't to celebrate their success? Why did my, my mind go to myself and say, how come I'm not in the place that they're in? And I think we all struggle at some level with comparisons and trying to find our worth and our identity by comparing ourselves to another person's. Can you relate to John's disciples if you're honest? And if you've felt this way before, John is going to give you permission to take a deep breath, relax, and say it's okay with not being the center of attention. It's okay to let someone else outshine you. So let's look more at John's response. Uh, we, we read in verse 27, he he alleviates their concern by saying a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from above. And then he continues in verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So first he says, you heard me say, I'm not the Christ. In other words, I'm not the point. I'm not the center of your attention. Jesus Christ should be the center of your attention. And then John gives, uh, I think, a wonderful analogy to help illustrate the point. And he uses the event of the wedding. And so, if you would just imagine with me, uh, think of an American wedding, okay? Uh, since we're all familiar. Now, now, pretend you did not understand all the roles that are involved in the wedding, okay? And I'm going to tell you about a role. And this role is the role of the best man, okay? The best man wears a tuxedo or a really nice suit, the best man is in charge of the wedding ring. The best man stands in front of the congregation and, and the assembly and the whole wedding. The best man gets to make a speech and have the attention 
of the whole assembly for as long as he wants. Now, imagine you didn't, you, just the first time you've heard, does this describe the most important man in the room? If you didn't know anything about weddings, you might think that. But because you do know about weddings, you know that's absolutely not the case. In fact, the best man's role is, is quite the opposite. The best man's role is to point to the groom as the most important man in the room. And this is, this is the analogy that, that John's making. He's saying that the, 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 one, uh, <clears throat> the one who has, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What he's saying is, I'm not the point. I'm not the groom. Jesus is the groom. I'm like the best man who stands alongside and continues to point to the groom and how great he is. And I can just, I can rejoice that the groom has met his bride. I can be glad that that's happening. I can celebrate the groom in his day. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, it, it is right for me to step aside because I'm not the point. Jesus is. Jesus is the point. And then he says this, which is a verse that uh, I think will be familiar to many. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase but I must decrease. It feels like a coffee mug verse or something, you know? It's pithy. But it has a lot of meaning to it. I think we all get in seasons of life where we're frustrated for reasons that, you know, we, we're not getting what we feel like we deserve coming to us. And I think it's verses like that that can help us to remember, wait a minute, it's not really about us. It's okay if he increases and I decrease. And can we, be, can we relax in that? Can we breathe in that? Can we be comfortable in that? What John is basically saying is, I've played my role. His value and his self-worth is not based on trying to hold on to any measure of success that he had attained. He was comfortable playing his role and decreasing in relation to the coming Savior, Jesus Christ. If we can come to a place where our value is, is not found in comparing ourselves with others, we don't have to see other people as competition. And if we don't see other people as competition, then that opens the possibilities for us to actually and genuinely celebrate others, to, to be happy about other people's success, to root for other people's success. It, it helps us to love people more truly if it's not about us. And the reality is that the role we are given in life, all the roles we are given, are always in the shadow of Jesus. We're not built and we're not designed to be the center of attention. We're, we're not built to be the point. We're not built to be the ultimate best. And, and, and life, I think, affords us a lot of examples of, of what happens when people 
uh, are, are treated as the best, when people are treated as the center of attention, when, when all of a sudden fame and glory uh, inundate a person, it's, it's difficult to handle. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the, the saying, rock stars die early. But that's actually a true statement. There was a study done at the University of Sydney, and they looked at 13,000 performers, rock stars, if you will, and they found that on average, rock stars died 25 years earlier than the average human being. And I think it has to directly to do with this idea that, uh, that we're not built to receive all this adulation and accept it for ourselves. There's a Hollywood actor by the name of, of Chris Pratt. You may have heard of him. He played in the Lego movie. He's a believer, and he, and he said this. He quotes this. He's actually quoting a pastor. He says this, If the spotlight that is shining on you is brighter than the light that's within you, it will kill you. And I thought that was just so profound. It's actually not wrong to have notoriety. It's not wrong to have recognition. It's not wrong to receive rewards. It's not wrong to be famous. It's what you do with that fame. It's what you do with that notoriety. It's what you do with that recognition. John is famous. Make no doubt about it. John is probably the most, uh, the biggest Christian celebrity there is. And yet, he's using that to continually point to someone who's greater than he is. He's not holding on to it. He's not accepting it as his own. He's saying, okay, now that I have this influence, you know what I want you to do? Go to Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Savior of the world. He's your comfort. He's your peace. He's your Savior, not me. So as John's disciples go to, go to John, they're worried about losing their influence. They're worried about losing their success. John says, that's the point. That's why God is giving me this role, is to give it away to Jesus, and I want you to do the same. And some of you remember, if we go back, when John first identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, like some of his disciples, like they went right away after Jesus. Now, I don't know all their motives, but people respond differently at different times. With these disciples, they stuck with John, they disregarded Jesus, but John is still teaching them No, no, no. He's the point, not me. And it's okay to not be the point. It's okay not to be the center of attention. Jesus deserves to be the ultimate center of attention. Question is why? Why does Jesus deserve to be the ultimate center of attention? And and my answer and what I'm going to argue for my final point is that He deserves to be the center of attention because Jesus is the best. Jesus is the best. Let me read verses 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. By the way, just so you know, uh, John likely stopped talking in verse 30. John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you're looking at the ESV, you see the quotation end. And starting in verse 31 through 36, this is a commentary from John the Apostle who's writing this. Okay? All right. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The, the first thing I want to point out, it's, it's J, uh, John the Baptist, his, his claim, his, his continuing to point to Jesus. Why is it compelling? I think one reason why it's compelling to me and, and, and I hope it's compelling to you, is John, John is someone who already has fame and influence. And something that I think is rare to see in our society is people who have that, like, point to someone else as better than they are. Let me give you an example, uh, or an illustration. Elections, politics, okay? Uh, in 2020, we're going to have a, a very large candidate field for the Democratic uh, nominees to be president. You can already see that it seems like every other day someone's announcing they're going to run for president. And I guarantee you this will happen. All of them will do a lot of work to play up why they're the best candidate. They will not point to other candidates as great candidates. They will point to themselves as the best candidates. In fact, they will probably even start to, at some point, there will be some initial pleasantries and niceties, and then they will start to demean other opponents. They will start to talk about how the other candidates are not as experienced as they are, how the other candidates are not as smart as they are, how they have crappy uh, policies. Um, they will say they're ugly, and they will say all these things. They will say all these things until it becomes abundantly clear that they cannot win and then they will turn around and say of that same candidate, I endorse them to be the president. They will make a fantastic president of the United States. They're smart. Their policies are great. They're even good looking. But only after it's abundantly clear they cannot win. No one does that when they're the front runner. No one does that when they're, when they're the front runner. And with John, John is like the front runner. John pointed to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, at the peak of his ministry, and at the end of his ministry, he was consistent. And so at the very least, that should cause you to go, you know what, John's not about himself. He really believes that Jesus is the Christ and that he's worth our attention. John really believes that Jesus is the best, period. And that's the point of this book. That's why John the Apostle is highlighting these stories to get us to see, to get us to believe that Jesus really is the Christ. And so he highlights John the Baptist, the most famous religious figure in his time, is not trying to be about himself. He's being about Jesus. Secondly, we have this list, and, and you could preach a whole sermon on this, but I won't. Uh, a list of five attributes of Jesus that demonstrate why, demonstrates why he deserves 
to be the center of attention, why he is, in fact, the best. Number one, Jesus comes from above. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all, whereas we are from earth. That's number one. Number two, Jesus has perfect visibility into everything God sees and does. It's in verse, that's from verse uh, he bears witness, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. That's Jesus in heaven. That's the witness that Jesus is bearing witness to. We don't have that kind of visibility. Number three, Jesus utters the very words of God. Because it says he gives the, the, the spirit without measure. Now, I used to think that was God giving us the spirit without measure. But it's actually it's referring to God, the Father, giving to God the Son, Jesus, the Spirit without measure. In other words, the fullness of the Spirit of God dwells within Jesus. And because of that, he utters the very words of God. If you, if you remember in John chapter 1, it talked about Jesus being the Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and nothing in creation was made except through the Word, Jesus. So when, when God said, let there be light, that was Jesus saying, let there be light. Those are the words of God that he's uttering. We utter words like OMG and LOL and whatever John uttered this morning in the traffic incident. God the Father, fourthly, God the Father has given Jesus all authority. All authority has been given to Jesus not us. No one except Jesus has all authority. And fifthly, only Jesus possesses the ability to grant eternal life. He created life. He takes away life. He's the owner of life. And so we have this resume of Jesus that speak to, if you could sum it all up, he is the very representation of God himself in a person. That's why he's the best. You know, when Stephanie and I, we have, we go back and forth and we say, we call each other the best. And we try to do it in creative ways and whatnot. And uh, I think it's great. And, uh, and she is the best. Uh, <laughs> See? See, I can't, I can't get away without her returning it. Um, but since I'm preaching, mine counts more than yours. So, uh, but it's a term of endearment. But it's not actually true, right? I mean, if, if I was really the best, like period, like ultimately in her life or in all of our lives, I would submit to you that would be hell. I would submit to you that, because when we think about hope, when we think about, like, aspirations, when we think about, like, one day, you know, the, the pain that we feel, the, the sorrow that we feel will go away, we don't think about, like, me. Right? We don't think about John. We don't think about our neighbor. Right? We think about something transcendent. Something that would overcome. Why? Because we know that we're all like part of the same substance that creates this sorrow, that creates this pain, that creates the frustration because we know we fall short. 
we know we sin, we know we rebel, and we know that we need help outside of ourselves. You don't want you to be God, if you're honest. Because you know you're from earth, you speak words that don't make sense, you do things, the things that you want to do, you don't even do. Like your own rules, you break them. We do that. We don't want us to be God. That's why God, when he lays out his resume for Jesus, he says he's from above. Perfect visibility, everything God does, utters the very words of God. He has all the authority from God in his person. He is glorious He is supreme. He is sovereign. He's in control. He's the best. But not only is he the best, he's the best for us. And he's taken all of his resources, all of his power, all of his majesty, and he said, I am going to lay it down for you so that you would have eternal life. He's used his resources and directed it towards us in love by laying by by sending his son to lay his life down for us that we may have eternal life. And and get this, it's it's beautiful. You see it in in just grammar. Verse 36, whoever believes in the son will have eternal life? No, has eternal life. I think sometimes I forget, I think, oh, eternal life starts like when I die. Or eternal, eternal life starts like at some point in the future. But what the text is saying is that if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. It's, some, it's present with you. Eternal life starts when you believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life right now. And it's a beautiful gift that God gives us that he uses all of his resources, all of his majesty to love us in that way. This all comes back down to belief. What do we believe? And belief is not just intellectual assent or agreement that that God is real, that Jesus is true. If, If you look at verse 36 you'll see this contrast that makes it clear. Belief is something more than just intellectually agreeing to something. In verse 36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the promise. And the contra promise is whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And so he's making, the belief and obedience are analogous. In other words, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. True belief means we will obey. And if we don't obey, it's an indication that maybe we don't truly believe. Jesus later says, we'll say in, in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so there's always this tie to, to what we do in our minds, which is important. Uh, faith, uh, belief does have to do. It is, 
it is related to the mind. It does include intellectual assent, but it's not only intellectual assent. It is agreeing with your mind and letting that transform yourself so that you act in accordance with what you say you believe. And so when, when we hear about God saying, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, we need to understand that belief is, is holistic. And it works its way out into actually walking in that belief. And so I want to end by challenging us and encouraging us to walk out in that belief. What does obedience look like in light of this teaching? What does obedience look like in light? If Jesus really is the best, if Jesus really does deserve to be the center of our attention, then what is, how do we walk that out into faith? How do we get from just going, yeah, I agree with that, to actually practicing that? I just want to suggest three simple ways to do that. The first is obedience in expressing thanks. Obedience in expressing thanks. And the reason why I think that's one of the ways we walk that out is because it can be very easy if we don't believe that Jesus is the best, if we find our value in our position, our own success, to be bitter about what God gives us, if, if we don't see it as measuring up to our perceived notions of what success looks like. But if we believe that Jesus really is the best and that he gave us his best in Jesus, then that, that what he gives us in Jesus determines our value, determines our worth. So we don't need to work for our salvation. We don't need to have a certain position for our salvation. We don't need to have a certain level of success or performance for our salvation. And so we, be, we can be thankful for whatever God gives us. Whatever role God puts us in, we can be thankful. And so I want to encourage us, wherever you're at, even if you're frustrated with where you are in life, even if you're frustrated with the amount of success you've had as a parent, as a husband or wife, as a co-worker, as a friend, whatever realm of life, be thankful for what God has given you. Ask God for help. Sure, if things are hard, ask him for help, but be thankful in the midst of that. The second thing is being obedient and rejoicing with others. Instead of as I felt before, the first thought of when you hear about someone's success or when you hear about someone being recognized, instead of the first thought being thinking of how I should be recognized, maybe we should think about rejoicing with others and celebrating others' success. Ask God to help, because I know sometimes it's hard. If, if you've struggled with getting pregnant, sometimes it's hard to see and celebrate the su su success of someone else's pregnancy. Like, I get it. Like, this is real-life stuff, but God can help us to get beyond ourselves if we understand that Jesus really is the best. We can celebrate genuinely with others as they are blessed. And the third and final obedience exhortation. We can be obedient in pointing other people to Jesus. We can be obedient in pointing people to, uh, to Jesus. And, and this is what John the Baptist's whole life was about. His whole life was about pointing people to the best person in the universe. 
And if we really believe that Jesus is the best, that he really came and died and laid down his life for us, then why wouldn't we point other people to him? Like, it's almost as if sometimes I feel like, and I'm guilty, just as guilty as anyone, of hoarding God's gift for myself, thanking God for saving me, and not thinking about the other person who also needs that same gift. If we believe in this message, then we would naturally want to share this message with others who need it. And so I want to encourage us. And I know it's hard, and I know life is busy, and I know it's uncomfortable sometimes. But I want to encourage you, if, if, if you believe in this message, to walk out, ex- express thanks, rejoice with others, celebrate with others, point people to Jesus. And, and I want to pray for us that God would help us because we can't do any of this without the Spirit's help. This is not a legalism. This is not do this to be saved. This is ask God to help you to walk in this. And so that's what I pray for this this morning um, as we close. Father, we thank you so much that you sent your best to us. Thank you, Father, for making Jesus the center of our attention. Thank you, Father, for giving us eternal life if we would believe. Lord, I want to ask that you would help us, wherever we're at, to begin to walk in obedience in light of what we've believed. Lord, if we don't believe, help us in our unbelief. Increase our faith. Increase our trust in you. Lord, cause us to be thankful for whatever you've given us in life. Lord, help us to be content. Help us to be at ease. Help us to have peace about where we're at in life. Let us humbly come to you with our requests, but in thankfulness. Help us to rejoice in the success of others. Lord, help our hearts just to to feel and, and empathize with other people's success and other people's joys. And finally, Father, I pray that you would help us to have the boldness and have the courage to to speak to others about your goodness, to point other people to your good news, to your power to save, to your love for us. Lord, I pray that you would even bring to mind uh, people, even today, even this week, Lord, that we could go talk to, that we could go share the good news with that we could remind them, Lord, of of your love for us. Father, we acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from you. So we ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to enable us, to empower us. Lord, would you cause us to bear fruit? We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we also celebrate communion. So if you believe in this 